Well, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy and to chapter 3. And our reading that has been set for our study this session begins in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. I just, uh, so you can let Don Carson know that I did as he instructed us. <laughs> Father, with our Bibles open before us, we pray now that you will continue to speak to us as you have been doing, as we have sung your praise, as we have uh, gathered under your word, as it's been taught to us. And we pray now for freshness of mind, for understanding, for receptive hearts, for a willing response to your truth, that our feet may walk in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Amen. Well, you know, there's nothing like the prospect of death to clarify the issues of life. One of the reasons that young people are so stupid is because they think, <laughs> they think that they're going to live forever until one of them actually falls off his motorbike or something dreadful happens. The Bible is very, very clear about this in all of its pages, right from the very beginning, the fall of man and the reality of death. And uh, the writer to Ecclesiastes says classically at one point, um, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party because death is the destiny of every man and the living must take this to heart. I begin in that way because if you look down to the concluding part of the reading that we've just had, 
you will see that Paul is facing the prospect of his death in light of what he has said, as was pointed out to us earlier at the beginning of his letter to Timothy, concerning the promise of life. So the prospect of his death is set within the context of the promise of life, a life that is offered through his preaching and a life that has been embraced by him and discovered in the Lord Jesus. And now uh, the time has come for his analusis. That's the word there for departure. It's an interesting word. It's the word that would be used for striking camp and going back to your permanent residence or um, unyoking uh, beasts of burden at the end of the day and allowing them to relax in the fields or weighing an anchor and uh, heading back to the harbor. So there's no sense of trauma. There's no sense of uh, peculiar despair or anxiety that comes out of how he writes to Timothy. Indeed, he is able to say without any pride at all that as a result of God's grace to him and through him, he's been able to run this race and fight this fight and, and keep the faith. And of course, here in what is Large, essentially his, his swan song, his final letter, he is deeply concerned that in this transition which is about to take place between the apostolic and the post-apostolic church, that into the next generation and into the next generations, there will be that solid conviction concerning the essential place of the gospel and the absolute necessity for preaching it. In a relay race, and I speak only of what I have observed, but in a relay race, it seems pretty obvious to me that those moments of transition are absolutely crucial. No matter how fast someone has run the first 400 meters, if it is, a, if it is a, that length of race, it doesn't matter how far in advance they are, if in that transitional box, they do not get the baton, or the baton, as you say. Um, <laughs> if they don't get the thing into the hand of the, of the next runner, if the girl drops it, the whole thing is pretty well over. No matter how fast she's been, and no matter who the next person is, in that moment of transition, it's crucial. And here we have at uh, that moment of transition, one commentator said that from a human perspective, the church at this point trembled on the brink of annihilation. From a human perspective, there was no conviction necessary that said it's inevitable that it will continue, that it will be successful, that it will progress, and that things will continue as planned. And so the great urgency of Paul is to make sure that his young lieutenant, his child in the faith, his, uh, his boy, if you like, although he's, he's not a boy anymore, he might have been in his late 30s, perhaps even as old as 40, but that he will now, as he says in the verses that we began to read, in a context where things are apparently going from bad to worse, where people are deviating from course, where some have swerved from the truth, where all kinds of notions are beginning to swirl around in Ephesus, just as Paul had said would happen when he took his leave of the Ephesian elders as recorded in Acts chapter 20. In that context, he says, verse 14, but when it comes to you, Timothy, as for you, continue in 
what you have learned. Continue, keep on, make sure that you do not drop the baton. And he is very, very straightforward in this, isn't he? I want you to make sure that the things you've learned, the things you've firmly believed, he doesn't just have a head knowledge of them. And he says, and let me remind you of those from whom you learned it, presumably in some measure a personal reference to the apostle, and also to the benefits and blessings that he had enjoyed as a boy growing up in his home. And when you go back and read through the letter, you realize the strategic place of being raised in a Christian environment, although there's no indication his father believed, but his mother was godly and his grandmother was godly. And the place of the Shema within his home and within his life would have been anchored in his young mind. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He would have started his day with that, and he would have ended his day with that. And these things are to be upon your hearts, and you're to teach them to your children when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And as Paul now writes from the dungeon and he pens these words and as they're read in the public environment of Ephesus in presumably multiple situations, and as the people are now hearing what their young pastor is supposed to be doing and what he's supposed to be like, so these things dawn upon Timothy. And if I may pause and just say, I personally thank God, and I hope those of you who enjoy the same benefit do also for the immense privilege of being raised in a home where my parents, from my earliest days, opened up the scriptures to me and told me the wonderful news concerning Jesus. When I was a 16-year-old boy, I was stupid like everybody else, and uh, I understood why Mark Twain said when I was 15, I thought my father was a fool. And when I became 25, I realized what a wise man he was. And in those teenage years, I would often say when people ask me, well, what, is it a benefit to be raised in a Christian home? I'd say, well, I, I don't know. Until a Yorkshireman took me aside one day, you can tell I, I've had to be taken aside a lot in my life. And, <laughs> and he took me aside and he said, son, you might not realize it today, but you'll realize it one day the amazing providence and goodness of God in your life that has nurtured you and established you in this way. You can only make that appeal if there is veracity to it. And Paul appeals to this in Timothy's life. I want you to continue in what you have firmly believed, the things that have become the verities for you, the underpinning of your life. And remember, the impact of others upon you. You learn from them. From the very uh, infancy of your days, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament scriptures. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's here we come to, uh, you know, one of the great proof texts uh, for uh, the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. But we're not going to pause on it because Paul is not writing something here that Timothy would have said, oh, wow, I didn't know, I didn't know that, you know, that, that he's now informed of the nature of Scripture. No, he's simply reminding him of the reality of it, that you have turned to the Old Testament again and again, Timothy, and you know 
that that has been breathed out by God, that the scriptures are divinely inspired, that they're completely reliable, that they're totally sufficient, and they are the very key, verse 17, to the competence of the man of God, because in them you find the equipment necessary for fulfilling the task to which you have been called and which I am now charging you about as I begin to take my leave of you. People have gone the way of deviation. Others are going to be intrigued by all kinds of inventions, but Timothy must make sure that he's not sucked into any one of those um, dark holes. Uh, by the way, if, let's just remind ourselves that uh, the ministry of reminder is very important, isn't it? Uh, many times the Bible actually tells us to remember things. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, the, the place of repetition, the place of memory, the, the recalling of things. It's only in the second half of my lifetime that uh, actual memorization has become passé that in educational circles, the idea of actually learning things off by heart is regarded as a very inferior way to try and understand anything at all. And so a sort of postmodern approach to education that has you know, deconstructed everything is deconstructed language, deconstructed writing. Now, the difference between a verb and an adjective is entirely up to you. Uh, there's no reason for you to get concerned about it at all. And. Uh, now, the Bible's not saying that at all. Peter, again, like Paul, I intend always to remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly convinced of them, so that after my departure, you may be able to recall the things I've said. And if you think about the best of people who have influenced your life, whether in education or in relationships, there will be certain things that stand out. As soon as their face comes to mind, a phrase comes to mind like my little friend T.S. Mooney, who's been in heaven for a while, an Irishman, a bachelor all of his life, died in his early 80s, a Presbyterian known affectionately by many as the Bishop of the Presbyterian Church of Ireland, if, as if such a thing existed. And, uh, <laughs> and one day I asked him in the, in, the, in the early days of our conversation, when, in our relationship, when he was by this time in his 70s, I said, T.S., I said, uh, why, did you, why did you never get married? And he says, well, he said in his Irish accent, he said, well, for me, he says, the desirable was always unattainable, and the attainable was always undesirable. <laughs> and, and, and then he said, and furthermore, I'd rather go through life wanting what I don't have than having what I don't want. But he was the leader of a boys' Bible class for 50 years. He never missed a Sunday except when the thing was out for vacation for 50 years. His tombstone in Londonderry has his name, and it simply says, the leader of Londonderry Crusader class for 50 solid years. And I asked him, what are you doing in that for 50 years with boys? This is what he said immediately. I want every boy to have a Bible in his hand, a savior in his heart, and a purpose in his life. That sticks. You remember these things, good things or bad things. Now it is in the context of that that you then have this charge. There's a sense in which the whole of the letter is building up to what he now says to Timothy in these opening five verses of chapter four. And we'll do what we can with them in the time uh, that we have. Notice 
first of all, that the charge that he gives him is a solemn charge, a solemn charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's quite a, there's nothing casual or inconsequential about this, is there? Says Matthew Henry, the best of men have need to be awed, A-W-E-D, have need to be awed into the discharge of their duty. One of the alarming things about our more casual age is the fact that that casual perspective uh, can be almost pervasive in every area. And uh, the distinction between casual and flippant or inconsequential or weightless or transient or ephemeral, whatever we want to load the words up. But that, but that notion of, does it, does, it mean, does it mean nothing to you, sir? Would you jest with people from the Bible? You remember in, in, in Hamlet, in the gravedigger scene, does anybody remember the great figures? <laughs> Not sure I remember it myself now. <laughs> well, they come on the gravediggers, don't they? And they and they, and they're singing, and they're telling jokes, and. Um, Laertes, or one of the dudes, says to his friend, essentially, how come they're singing at grave digging? To which his friend replies, custom hath made of it in them a matter of easiness. The routine nature of it has actually deadened them to the reality of the task before them. One of the great dangers of increased longevity in pulpit ministry, allied with a measure of usefulness, combined with a natural ability of language, is that the pastor if he's not careful, and if his congregation is not watchful, will eventually be able to speak for 40 or 45 minutes without it actually having done very much at all to his own heart, his own life, and his congregation, if they're not watchful for him, may become just like him. The best of men have need to be awed into the discharge of their ministry. Now, in Scotland, when ministers are inducted, over here they're installed. I like inducted better. You would not be surprised by that. You install a refrigerator. You install, <laughs> you install a dishwasher. I don't know that you install a minister. But anyway... When you do it, at least when they did it in Scotland, it was downright scary. 
as an observer. First, the charge would be given by some senior member to the congregation in the prospect of receiving this man. Then the charge would be given to the man himself. And in the course of that, all kinds of scary things would be said, you know. And quotes from Richard Baxter abounded, like, it is a sad thing that so many of us preach our hearers to sleep, but it is sadder still if we have studied and preached ourselves to sleep and have talked so long against the hardness of heart till our own grow hardened under the noise of our own reproofs. In other words, when we become adept at thinking that as long as we've preached it, we've lived it, we've obeyed it, when we haven't. Oh, you see, I think it's Tiliki who says, the pulpit draws the preacher the way the sea draws the sailor. To preach, to really preach, is to die naked in front of people. And to realize every time you do that you're going to have to do it again in the evening service. It is the most vulnerable of situations. It is virtually impossible ultimately to conceal anything, especially over the long haul. There's safety in that too. And you find yourself saying, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient? The balance of authority and intimacy. I charge you before God. It's a, it's a quite amazing thing, isn't it? You're accountable, he says. You're not accountable to the organist. Hopefully there isn't one. You're not accountable. <laughs> You're not accountable. And I've enjoyed the music here immensely just before somebody starts saying bad things and tweeting all over the universe. I've enjoyed <laughs> I've enjoyed it greatly, and I thoroughly enjoyed the early meeting I had this morning with the mothers and toddlers group. That was a lovely time. And, um, <laughs> but Timothy needs to know that he is not accountable ultimately to Paul. He's not accountable ultimately to the congregation in Ephesus, but he is accountable to God that he exercises his ministry with the Father and the Son as his, as, his, as his witnesses and in light of the appearing and the consummation of the kingdom of Christ himself. As the writer to the Hebrews exhorts the congregation in chapter 13, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are really nice fellows. No, for they are really gifted preachers. No, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Really? Really. That's pastoral ministry. Some of you are physicians. I admire you. I need you. But my role is far more significant than yours. For you are dealing only with the material dimension of human existence. I and we have been entrusted with the eternal dimension of the living reality of God's creation. That's why Paul himself is compelled and impelled by these things. He says, 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And basically he says, you know, I'm, I am so consumed with that thought that other thoughts are gonna have to take their place. He, he lived his life, didn't he, in the, in the light of the appearing of Christ. He lived the now in light of the then. He wasn't an existentialist. The now had significance only because of the then. This is not dead poet society. This is not dear Robin Williams. Do you remember this scene? He shows the boys the pictures in the hallway and he says, they were students here just as your students. They are gone. They are no more. That you are now, but this day is all you have. This is all of your significance. Well, that was his worldview. Paul's not doing that. And those who have impacted the church most effectively, whether in the pages of scripture or in the pages of church history, I think are those who have had a solid grasp of this. The, the, the godly Richard Sibbs, who was the minister in Holy Trinity, Cambridge, for a while before he died, and in other places before that, his friend Isaac Walton said of him, of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. McShane dies at 29, having, amongst other things, penned these words. When this passing world is done, what 25-year-old Scotsman is thinking about the passing world being done? Only somebody who is exercising his ministry in St. Peter's Dundee in light of the then. You see, Paul has this day in mind. It's capitalized here in the ESV. I hope it is in yours as well. He will award to me on that day. What day? The day when it's all wrapped up, the day when the records are revealed. McShane has that in mind. When this passing world is done and when a sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before your throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. The robe of righteousness doesn't come in gray. It only comes in white. This is not presumption on his part. Well, this charge is a solemn charge, and also you will notice that it is a simple charge. The youngest person in this room can understand it. Verse two, in just three words, preach the word, preach the word. And we've seen just very, very helpfully, haven't we? The implications of that worked out in the life and ministry of Paul and the other apostles. And now he who has been effectively used by God is saying to Timothy, I want you to do the same thing. It's uh, so counterintuitive to the spirit of our age, isn't it? where our young men, particularly in ministry, are scrambling around trying to come up with a strategy, trying to come up with a way to move the church forward, trying to come up with a way to be effective. What am I supposed to do? This conference and that conference and so on. And if they'll just pay attention, if they'll just look and learn, they will see. 
It's illustrated in my native town in Glasgow. Tomorrow, if you come there, if we could go there tomorrow, you can see church buildings that have been there for hundreds of years, dark and empty. And you can see shopfront situations that are bursting with university students and artisans and the people from the city. What's, what, what, what darkened this place and what put the lights on here? The Bible. The Bible. These people said, well, we're not going to teach the Bible. It's, it's, it, 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 people don't like that. It's, it, tell me the things you don't like. You don't like the resurrection? Well, we'll get rid of the resurrection. That's not a problem. Anything else? Uh, substitutionary atonement? Well, yeah, we'll get rid of that as well. And it just very gradually, they had nothing left except two, two binders and nothing in it. And so the people come and say, but well, the man doesn't have anything to say, so why would I come? And they don't come. They go down the street, and there's a fellow, and he says, now I want you to take your Bible and to turn up to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to look at this this morning. And people are sitting there going, this is remarkable stuff. What's happening? The Spirit of God, using the Word of God, does the work of God in the lives of the people of God. So the charge is simple. It, it's in concurrence with all the other exhortations that you find that run through his letter. He's, he's encouraged Timothy about the pattern of sound words in chapter one, a guarding of the good deposit, making sure that he's communicating the word of truth, that he is the one who is continuing in all that he's learned from the sacred writings. All of these things underpin this charge to Timothy to teach the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching that he now has from the apostles and will have. He's not charged with coming up with something. <laughs> if, you, if you've been in pastoral ministry at all, and some of you have, every so often when you're playing golf or pursuing some other great exercise, somebody will say to you while you're waiting on the tee, Alistair, I wanted to ask you, how long have you been doing this now? I said, well, I was an assistant when I was 23, and, and now I'm 62, so a long time. And they always say the same thing. How do you come up with something? How do you come up with something? And what they mean is, how do you come up with something? <laughs> and I say, I don't come up with something. And I don't mean to be pious or anything, and I wouldn't necessarily use this phrase, but what I want to say to them is, because God has come down with something. He has come down and delivered us the material. A, a fellow, a Buckeye, uh, from uh, the 19th century who was in the 30th Indiana Volunteer Infantry during the Civil War, uh, penned uh, only one song that ever made its way to Scotland. And, and this is the song that he wrote. And I know this, not because of the Indiana Infantry, which I'd never heard, infantry, which I'd never heard of, but because I grew up with this song. I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah. This message unto you I bring. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. And then the chorus is, look and live, my brother live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah. It's only that you look and live. What a simple story. What a very short sermon. What dreadful preaching on the part of the individual who said this phrase again and again and again on the night that a young man had wandered into the wrong building when he was going to church, namely Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and the minister said to him, young man, are you looking and living? Straightforward, solemn, simple. 
what God has spoken to the apostles, bequeathed in the Bible, we are to preach. We are to preach the Word, and we are to preach only the Word. We've had Keith Green this morning, so let's just throw in a little A.W. Tozer. It seems to fit. Uh, it's nice for Don Carson as well, because he was a, Tozer was a Canadian, I think. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, or the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Well, there you have it. It's very, very clear, isn't it? The solemn nature of it, the simple nature of it. And in the exercise of it, there needs to be a readiness to uh, recognize that the seasons will be such that some will be daunting, some will be discouraging and disheartening. And it is imperative that Timothy, who has already been told by Paul of the difficulties that have been part of his ministry. In fact, he's been invited in chapter 1 to join Paul in suffering for the gospel. So there's no way that uh, Paul has been gilding the lily and is now dropping something on him that is new information. No, he's reinforcing the fact. The New English Bible, which I don't quote very often, uh, translates this, press the message home on all occasions convenient and inconvenient. I think that's very good. Press it home on all occasions, convenient and inconvenient. Now, that is not, says John Stott, a biblical warrant for rudeness. It is rather a biblical appeal against laziness. Now, we don't have time to unpack this, but let's just put it in these phrases. So, Timothy, I want you to make sure that you proclaim this word in a season that is marked by receptivity or one that is marked by hostility. When the prospect fills you with delight, when the prospect fills you with dread. When the listeners are tuned out, when the listeners are tuned in. When the crowds are growing, when your congregation is dwindling. And having previously pointed out the profitability of the word that he is to preach, he now reminds him that God's Word speaks to people in different situations and may be applied in different ways. This is one of the great mysteries. I alluded to it last night, and I, I still have it in my mind this morning. And I went in search of something in my notes, which I found uh, from the 16th, uh, 15th, 16th and 17th century. Uh, William Perkins, in giving guidance to the preachers of his day, and in thinking in terms of the multidimensional um, lives that are represented in any congregation, whether it's 30 people or uh, 3,000 people, he said it is important for you in preaching the Word of God that you keep these categories of listeners in your mind. And I'm just going to read them for you without any further statement. And these are the categories that he, that he was concerned that the people of his day would keep in mind. 
that they would know, first of all, that when you preach, there will be non-Christians there who know nothing about the gospel and don't care. There will be non-Christians who know nothing about the gospel but are teachable. There are those who know what the gospel is but have never been humbled to see their need of a savior. There will be those who have been humbled, some in the early stages of seeing their need, others who see that they need salvation, not merely improvement, and are convinced now that only Christ can save them. There will be genuine believers who need to be taught. There will be backsliders who are in that condition, either as a result of failing to be taught or as a result of failure to live consistently in the light of what they have been taught. In other words, says Perkins, you will be confronted by a diverse, mixed congregation of believers and unbelievers. Well, just think about that for a moment. How can anybody know all about that? Who knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man that is in him? Well, how could you, what are you supposed to do? Preach the word. Preach the word. When you feel like it, when you don't feel like it. You know, the, you know the famous story, don't you, about the, the fellow who's waking up by his mother on the Sunday morning and says, John, and he wakes up and he says, what? She says, you're, you're, you're a little late. He said, I'm not going this morning. John, you have to go to church. I, I don't want to go to church. I, I don't like church. Well, John, I think you should. Well, why? Well, you're the pastor of the church. <laughs> I often say to my wife, I, I should have been a train driver. Because it doesn't, I mean, I don't want to be unkind to train drivers, but I mean, I mean as long as you can read like red and green, <laughs> the, the, the thing just goes, you know. And you can be depressed up there because you're just up there all by yourself. I mean, you could be weeping buckets and nobody would know, or having an existential experience and nobody would care. But do you know what it's like to do this when your heart is breaking? When you're confronted by your unanswered prayers? When the longings that you have for your children are unfulfilled? When the fears of your own finitude grab you by the throat? When you're diagnosed with cancer? Well, where's your confidence? In the Scriptures. Because the scriptures do what they do. You, because you, they will reprove, they will rebuke, they will exhort. Because you will. In other words, I don't think you have to sit down and say, I'm going to do a reproving sermon. Some of us have got that, uh, that's our M.O. Nothing we like better than a little bit of reproving. And uh, some of us are trying to reprove people into the kingdom and doing a horrible job of it. And others of us are rebuking. I just want to rebuke you this morning. Um, I only say this because I love you, and you know, it never feels like that, does it? And some people are exhorting, exhorting, exhorting. And, 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 and I, again, Phillips, J.B. Phillips, whose paraphrase I've always found immensely helpful, this is, this is how he puts it. He, he takes these verbs as prove, correct, encourage, and uh, make sure that you do so consistently. So in other words, the doubtful are in need of encouragement. The doubtful are in need of that 
underpinning and understanding of, of the gospel. There's certain people are in need of correction because their thinking is faulty. Their living is now not in line with the truth of God's word. Others are horribly overwhelmed by things and they need to be encouraged. The kind of encouragement that Paul offers when he writes to the Thessalonians and he says, you know, I, I love you guys. You're like a sounding board for the wonder of the gospel in your area. And you, and you have a faith that is functional and you have a love that is active and you have a hope that hangs on. Well, it takes a skillful teacher to apply the truth of God's word. But ultimately, our confidence is that we will set it forward and allow God to fulfill his purposes. Now, you will notice that you have this dreadful adjective here in front of the word patience. This I regard as a dreadful adjective. Why could this not have read? In season, out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort with a wee bit of patience. <laughs> I can handle that. Complete patience. It was Jim Boyce who said to me, and I don't know where he got it from, he said, you know, as a young man, Alistair, when I met him in the early 80s, he said, the big danger is that you will overestimate what you can accomplish in one year and underestimate what you can accomplish in five years. And there is a sort of inherent, understandable impatience about youth. But the worst kind of impatience is sinful impatience. When I read this complete patience, I think about my role as a father. In fact, in my mind's eye, I go to a scene in a suburban part of Glasgow where I had determined that this was the early evening when my son would learn to ride a bicycle without stabilizers, which being translated training wheels. <laughs> and I determined that this would be the occasion and I would see to it. And I hope he can't remember. <laughs> I hope he can't remember. Because it is an unhappy memory to me. Because I was more concerned about my personal achievement than I was about whether he would enjoy the privilege of learning to ride that bike in that way. And that's bad enough except when I reflect on years of pastoral ministry and how so often one is tempted to think that by impatiently driving people from behind rather than leading them from in front, we may achieve the purposes of God. The work is to be done, says Paul to Timothy. It's to be done patiently. It's to be done carefully. And uh, it's to be done in the awareness of the fact that the environment will be such that uh, people are not going to put up with it. I don't know that I really want to go on much further than this. Um, I, th I, I think we have the point pretty clearly. Uh, the challenge is a real challenge. It's not locked in first century Ephesus. The time is coming. The time will keep coming. It's not something out in the future that Paul is referencing because he's giving specific instructions as to how to deal with it. 
There are these recurring seasons and periods of life. I think it'd be fair to say that we probably are in one right now. People will not put up with sound teaching. And they're not going to look for that which will make them healthy and useful. One of the great concerns of our, uh, our generation is to try and uh, make everything healthy and, and understandably so. Everything has how many grams you've got of this, how many fat things, how many big fat, little fat, medium-sized fat, everything. <laughs> and, 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 and still we've got the most obese nation in the entire universe for, for all of our proclamation. And people who are not, he says, tuning in. They'll be tuning out. They're not, they're not tuned to, to serious radio. They're tuned to curious radio. They're on the lookout for something that's fascinating, something that's intriguing, something that's speculative, something that's spicy. They'll heap up teachers like the women that he's mentioned, weak-willed women, a certain kind of lady who he's mentioned earlier, who is always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You can see her car. She has, a, she has crystals hanging from her mirror, and she has John 3.16 on the back bumper. She has a coexist sign on the front, and then she's got copies of the watchtower that she gives out when she goes in the dry cleaners. She's a complete mess. She's always learning, but she cannot come to a knowledge of the truth. The problem is inside, he says. It's not out. It's in. In keeping with Paul, what he had prophesied, when I leave you, watch yourselves, because I'm going to tell you, fierce wolves will arise. From among you, there will be people who'll begin to say, but that's not so important. We don't need to keep emphasizing that. And suddenly, that which is Peripheral becomes central, and the central becomes peripheral. So Paul says to him, make sure that you don't go down that road. Well, of course, you can find it before then. You can go back and read the prophets, and you find the same thing. You find it in Isaiah. You find it in Jeremiah. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land, says the Lord through Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. So they don't come to church and say, tell me the truth. They come to church and they say, tell me lies. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Isaiah 30. They reacted to the prophet, not because he wasn't clear, but because he was clear. And they said to him, Isaiah, speak to us smooth things, smooth things. Like children who say, I only want milkshakes for the rest of my life. I'm going to go strong. I'll be healthy and I'll be effective. And the mother has to say, you sound like a girl I once knew. And the daughter says, and who is that? And the mother says, me. I used to be stupid like you as well. <laughs> well, let me finish in, in, in this way. One doesn't have to do any kind of gymnastics to step from Ephesus into Albuquerque, as has been done already and then from Athens to Albuquerque. It's a very difficult place to spell. I couldn't have <laughs> I, The only way I could remember it was uh, I was saying it to myself as I flew here. 
I'm a little quirky. And, uh, <laughs> but what Paul is warning Timothy about is the fact that people are gonna turn away from biblical revelation and they're gonna turn to human speculation. In other words, there will be like so many in our own day who are proponents of a spirituality that is disconnected from any kind of biblical truth. And you meet this all the time, don't you, when you engage in conversation. People tell me all the time, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm very spiritual. I have no interest in the Bible. I don't know anything about it at all. Well, how are we to deal with that? Because if you're going to tell the truth, the biblical assessment of man is not naturally appealing. Because what the Bible says about us in our natural state is that we're sinful, guilty, responsible, and lost. How does this play out? Good morning, welcome to church. I should have you know that uh, you're sinful, guilty, responsible, and lost. Have a good day. (laughs) And it doesn't fit, does it? You see, because the glorious news for the sinner is that there's a savior. The glorious news for the guilty is that there is one who has dealt with the guilt. The glorious news for the responsible is that there is one who has acted responsibly in the keeping of the law and in the fulfilling of the purposes of the Father. And there is good news for the lost, that there is a shepherd who's come to seek them. It's great. Timothy, make sure you don't deviate on this. Keep your head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. The older you get, you tend to think like your grandfather, I've noticed. And at least I do. And I start now, I catch myself just saying things like, sound like my grandfather. It's very scary. Because I think everybody thinks we're all at the, when when I'm getting ready to punch out, I figured it's over. I mean, somebody's going to turn the lights out, it's the end of the world, right? As soon as I go, I mean, why would anybody want to be here without me? So, you know, people's eschatology changes with the passage of time. The closer they get to the grave, the more they're convinced of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that? When you're 12, it's like, well, fair enough, it's fine, whatever you want. But when you're like 112, he better be coming soon. But what if we're only at the front end of civilization? What if this whole notion of the day is the Lord's a thousand years and a thousand years a day, actually, you know, there's another thousand, there's another millennium. Well, we better buckle down to this stuff, right? At the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century, they asked William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, what his concerns were for the church in the next generation. This is what he said. In answering your inquiry, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. How prescient was that? Timothy, says Paul, be strengthened with the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's where your strength lies. 
Timothy, make sure that the things you've become convinced of, that you firmly believe, that you don't deviate from them, don't let people turn your head, keep your head, be sober-minded, don't get involved in speculative fancies, don't get involved in arguments about mythology and genealogy and all that stuff. It's a complete waste of time. Timothy, just preach the word and realize when you do that God will accomplish his purposes according to his plan that is grounded and founded in Christ and is from all of eternity. And since David finished with a hymn, song, and Don finished with one, I'm going to finish with one as well. The only difference is I'm going to sing it. No, just a joke. <laughs> Henry Tools, T. Twelves, I should say, Twelves, lived in the 19th century. He was an Anglican minister, and for a time, he was the headmaster of a school. As the headmaster of the school, he had the responsibility every so often for adjudicating examinations. The examinations were often such that there was no time frame to them. So from the time the boys in a boys' school entered into the examination room, they could stay there till the cows came home until they finally finished the, the, the essays that were set for them. And Twelves, on one occasion, was sitting there as uh, the evening shadows began to fall, and there was one young boy that was still left in the room. And as the evening shadows began to um, descend upon him and the circumstances, he began to reflect on the scene that is described in Luke chapter 4. His mind just went to it. How uh, Luke tells us that it was towards evening when the people came to Jesus and they brought to him the people who were sick and the people who were demon-possessed and so on. And Jesus ministered to them in a quite a remarkable way. And he took a sheet of paper and he wrote down a poem which then became a hymn, which is seldom sung, at least over here, I think. And the, the hymn begins, at even, at evening, ere the sun was set, the sick, O Lord, around thee lay. Oh, in what divers, various pains they met, oh, with what joy they went away. And then he began to reflect as a minister on the congregation that is under his care. And he wrote these words. O Savior Christ, our woes dispel. For some are sick and some are sad, and some have never loved thee well, and some have lost the love they had. And none, O Lord, have perfect rest, for none are wholly free from sin. And they who fain would serve thee best are conscious most of wrong within. And some are pressed with worldly care, and some are tried with sinful doubt, and some such grievous passions fear that only thou canst turn them out. And some have found the world is vain, yet from the world they break not free. And some have friends who cause them pain, yet have not sought a friend in thee. Well, how in the world are you going to do anything with this? Preach the word. Preach the word. Pray for your pastors. Pray for them. In prospect of preaching, while they preach, after they preach. Father, look upon us in your grace. 
we offer our lives afresh to you. Help us to understand, to believe, to obey. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.